Welcome everybody to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast. Today's episode is Short Fuse, starring Roddy McDowell and James Gregory. This is episode 6 of season 1. This episode was directed by Edward M. Abrams. The teleplay was by Jackson Gillis, and the story was by Lester Pine, Tina Pine, and Jackson Gillis. The original air date was January 19th, 1972, and the runtime, you guessed it, 73 minutes. Let's get right to the episode summary. Roger Stanford is a middling executive at Stanford Chemical, the company that bears his family name. Roger has ambitions of one day taking over the company, but his uncle, CEO David Buckner, is trying to organize a merger and push Roger out. Roger kills his uncle and manipulates his Aunt Dory to strengthen his position within the company. If Roger can avoid arrest and the sale of the company falls through, Aunt Dory is sure to give up control, leaving Roger in charge. The murder. As the scene begins, we are in a dark room where a man, in desperate need of a haircut and a proper shirt, looks to be building a bomb out of a cigar box. The man is Roger Stanford. There's some great slow jazz playing. He finishes building the bomb and, in an expression of his satisfaction, he mutters, Better than the Borgia. It's worth mentioning, the Borgia were a powerful family from Valencia during the Italian Renaissance. Rivals of the Medici, they were renowned for killing their rivals in their pursuit of power. The next scene, Roger is driving a three-wheeled golf cart type vehicle on the closed road of the massive Stanford Chemical Industrial Complex. Now the jazz is more bouncy. He enters an office where several employees are dutifully typing away on their typewriters. Roger meanders around the room, watching the employees as they work. He stops behind a female employee and then sprays silly string into her afro. She screams, and the other employees get up and run around frantically while Roger sprays them and shouts slogans encouraging them to rise up and protest the sale of their company. It's a bit like a Benny Hill episode. Mr. Buckner's secretary comes out of her office looking annoyed. She raises her voice over the chaos to inform Roger that Mr. Stanford will see him now. Roger enters her office, and it becomes clear that they are in a relationship, albeit kind of a casual one. She asks him what he was doing last night in his dark room, and she seems concerned that he'll be developing some pictures. Roger notices that Mr. Buckner's bags are packed and sitting on a chair. He asks what they're doing there, as Mr. Buckner doesn't leave until tomorrow. So the secretary informs him that he changed his mind and he's leaving tonight. She tries to corral Roger into Buckner's office, but he points out that the cigars are missing from Buckner's bags and she had better get some from the closet. She turns around and Roger takes a small pocket case of cigars from the jacket pocket of the packed bags and hides it in the tramp stamp of his tight pants. She turns to Roger from the closet and again tries to get him in to see Mr. Buckner, but Roger's having none of it, and he begins taking her pictures in an annoying way. In Buckner's office, Buckner's lighting a cigar while sitting at his desk. Roger is annoying his uncle by taking pictures of him, dancing around in front of him. Buckner has a beautiful headshot of himself, leaning in from the left with a nice suit and a salesman smile. Buckner's voice is preposterously deep and grainy. He asks Roger to read over a statement that he wants Roger to sign off on. It's a statement to the media that explains that Roger endorses the sale of the company, and he's lost interest in chemicals, 
and he's moving to Europe. So Buckner wants him out. Roger is defiant, and Buckner calls Roger spoiled and pampered by his Aunt Dory. Then Buckner's get-things-done guy, Quincy, part chauffeur, part private eye, produces a list of past transgressions that Roger had committed. Buckner tells Roger that he will be going to his cabin tonight, and he will be meeting with some execs at his cabin tomorrow to finalize paperwork for the sale of the company. He wants Roger to visit his Aunt Dory and tell her he's through with chemicals and he's moving to Europe. And if he doesn't, Buckner will expose his transgressions. We're told by Buckner that Dory will surely cut Roger off at this point. So Buckner's got Roger in a tight spot. If Roger cooperates, he's out. And if not, he's out. Roger tells Buckner that he'll sign the statement for the media tonight, and he'll talk to his aunt later. He says he knows when he's beaten. He leaves the office, and he and the secretary make plans to go out together that evening. Quick note, the secretary is played by Anne Francis, one of my personal favorites. In addition to this episode, she also makes an appearance in season two Columbo episode uh, with guest villain Leonard Nimoy. Um, it's a personal favorite episode of mine. It's a big fan favorite. I mean, you know, the, the people like Leonard Nimoy, so it's always going to be a favorite if he's in an episode. And if you want to see more of Anne Francis, especially when she's younger and stunning, uh, check out Blackboard Jungle, 1955. That's a good film. Um, Forbidden Planet, 1956, of course. Big, influential sci-fi film. I think that's her best-known role. Um, but check out 60s detective show Honey West. Um, this is my favorite version of Anne Francis. Um, she's in the lead role as Honey West. She runs a private investigation agency, and she has a pet ocelot. So uh, she's foxy and tough. I'll take that version of Anne Francis any day. Roger's walking to his car, and a workman named Fergie is waxing his uncle's limousine. Sounds like a euphemism. Roger asks Fergie to take a look under the hood of his car. He tells Fergie he thinks he has a loose plug wire or something. As Fergie is looking under the hood, Roger removes all the loose cigars from the glove compartment in Buckner's limo and replaces the cigar box on the passenger seat with the cigar box bomb. Okay, he wants to get rid of all the other cigars so that Buckner is forced to open the new box of uh, cigars. He closes the door quietly and sneaks away from the car before Fergie pops his head up. Buckner comes out of the building and gets into the car. He and Quincy drive away. The next scene is Roger in a club with the secretary. It's straight out of Austin Powers. There's a girl in a bikini dancing in a cage on the stage and wacky 70s club music playing. As the music plays, the scene switches between Roger and the secretary in the club uh, to Buckner and Quincy in the car driving up to the cabin in the pouring rain. Quincy opens the cigar box and hands a cigar to Buckner. Roger is checking his watch. Then the car explodes. The Columbo intro. Now Roger is in his car outside his aunt's house. He parks in the garage and walks up the stairs to Quincy's flat over the garage. He has a key and lets himself in. While inside, we have a view of the outside of the door. 
you can hear the sounds of a typewriter. Then Roger emerges with the typewriter case and takes it to a car. He closes the garage door and goes back up the stairs to Quincy's entrance. He turns off the light inside and is about to close the door when Columbo appears. Columbo says Roger's aunt called the police. And they go to the main house together. The He Knows scene. The next scene is in the main house. Aunt Doris had called the commissioner of police after she got a strange message from Mr. Buckner. They go into the other room, the one with the answering machine, uh, to listen to the message. Roger looks concerned. He obviously didn't expect this. The message is uh, hilarious and unbelievable. Let's listen to it. There's no one answering at the moment. This is a recording device. Would you care to leave a message? Oh, these modern idiotic devices. She's not home yet. Quincy, look at the dash there, will you? Dash? You hear that? Dash from the car. If so, your voice will be recorded and the connection won't be broken until you hang up. Nope. What's the matter with Benson? You sure your cigar case isn't in your coat pocket? You may start your message now. Thank you. Yeah, uh, just give me the, the, the box. Thank you. Hello? Hello, darling. It's me. Hold on just a second. Want me to pull over and open that for you? No, it's all right. I got it. Uh, look, when I'm calling, I tried to get you earlier today, Donovan, but as you can see, we were in one of those silly committee meetings or something. Miss Bishop couldn't get you from the office either. But what I was calling about, I'm, uh, I'm on my way up to the cabin now. So I'll see you tomorrow, no, Sunday, rather, Sunday afternoon or evening sometime. But uh, what I wanted you to know is that uh, Roger is going to come over to see you tonight. He wants to talk to you about something, so I just wanted to make sure that you'd be home and uh, wait up for him, will you? It's, uh, while he's made a decision about something, it might not be exactly what you figured it would be, but uh, to my way of thinking, it's, it's a wise decision. So, um, after you talk to him, uh, call me back at the cabin, will you? Let me know what he decided. Bye-bye for now, Donald. The answering machine is huge. It's like the size of a mini computer tower uh, on its side, and it has a dial and a button. The message seems out of sync, like there's some kind of delay between what the operator is saying and what Buckner hears. I know people in the 70s didn't encounter answering machines very often, but Buckner owns one. He should be familiar with how it works. Buckner and Quincy are having a really distracting side conversation about the missing cigars. And then Buckner leaves the most ambiguous message. Uh, Roger has something to tell you. He's come to a decision. It may not be what you had thought. Well, don't keep it a secret, Buckner. Let us in. <laughs> okay. While they're listening to the message, Roger is not so discreetly staring at his watch. Not like someone checks their watch for the time, but staring at his watch and making a screwed up face. Uh, BTW, this this actor, he his face. I don't know. You know in Step Brothers when a guy says to uh, to Buddy, I don't know what it is about your face, but I just want to deliver one of these right in your suck hole. It's kind of like that with Roger. Like his face, just it's so punchable. 
Yeah, so anyways, it looks like he's timing something, which he is, actually. Columbo sends a, a couple of darting glances his way while he's looking at his watch, and you can tell he knows. This is the he knows moment. After the message, Aunt Dory explains that she called Buckner on the car phone after the message, but there was no answer. Columbo assures her that they have the local Pine Wild police looking for Buckner. Meanwhile, Roger is guiding Columbo towards the door. He wants him out. As soon as he and Roger are alone, Columbo asks Roger about his parents. Roger says that they died in a freak explosion. A freak explosion while he was in college. Ding, 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 ding. Why would Roger mention this? He continues to explain that he was taken in by Aunt Dory and there are no other brothers and sisters. Columbo confirms that Aunt Dory is his father's sister. There are no other aunts and uncles. He seems to want to establish that Roger has a line to inherit. Roger makes it clear that if anything happens to Buckner, Dory will inherit. Uh, then Columbo is about to leave when he turns abruptly to Roger and asks if his watch is broken. Let's listen to the clip. Is your watch broken? Hmm? Your watch? Watch? Broken? No, why? Oh, it's nothing important. It's just that inside I noticed you kept looking at it. Well, you know, Lieutenant, um, people do look at their watches. Yes, they certainly do. Yeah, so he definitely knows. Columbo then leaves, and Aunt Dory asks Roger what he wanted to tell her. He says he's going to begin working in the legal department. Then Dory and Roger stare longingly at the headshot of Buckner. It's a wonderful headshot. The next scene has Columbo in the tram traveling to the top of the mountain. He looks terrified. He doesn't stand near the window or look out of it. The sheriff that is riding with him is explaining how safe it is and how beautiful the view is, and Columbo does not appear to appreciate it. At the top, he exits very tentatively. So here's the thing. What what is the deal with this tram? Well, like, why isn't there anyone else on it? Isn't this supposed to be a tourist attraction? Should there not be a bunch of tourists riding the tram? If not, why was it built? Like, why is it empty? The scene would be better anyway, with a bunch of families crammed on the tram, kids running around, shaking the tram, freaking Columbo out. Just, it's a bit strange. At the top of the mountain, they walk down a grass path and get into a jeep to drive to where the car wreck and bodies have been discovered. After his tram trip, Columbo seems relieved, paradoxically, to get into a jeep with no doors, no roof, no windows, and no seatbelts, and go careening down a bumpy hill for 20 minutes. Something that I would certainly find more terrifying than riding the tram. At the crash site, uh, they're hauling the bodies out of the ravine by crane. The sheriff says the road was slick last night, yet he and Columbo seem to think there was an explosion, uh, an exploding gas tank, or possibly a bomb, something like that. Now at the funeral, Aunt Dory is talking with Vice President Everett. She says Buckner had decided to put Roger in the legal department. Everett seems surprised by this, probably because it's a total lie. 
Dory says there's, uh, she's not sure why Buckner never wa- warmed Roger. Then she clutches that ridiculous headshot of Buckner again. Everett tells Aunt Dory that he's going to take care of everything, the press, the business, and Columbo. And Dory says she's glad that Everett is next in line. And then Everett kisses her hand in a lascivious manner. Now Columbo is wandering around Roger's dark room, snooping. Roger enters the adjacent room with his tripod and camera. He hears a noise and opens the dark room door just as Columbo has found the silly string aerosol can and decided to blast it into his face. So why, why would he do that? Okay. He emerges from the dark room with silly string in his mop top and Roger laughs and takes pictures. Roger starts picking silly string out of Columbo's hair and they begin chatting. Roger mentions that he also experiments in that room, and Columbo is lucky he didn't knock over some acid or nitroglycerin. He then continues to mention that he had his PhD in chemistry before he was 21. Why is he bringing these things up? Columbo must be thinking that this guy is either really obtuse or really overconfident. They take a walk through the factory together because apparently Roger has no real job duties or is on an extremely long lunch. They're pointlessly walking down a winding staircase of some metal framework structure when Columbo asks if it's possible to make a trigger device for a bomb that doesn't leave any powder. Roger realizes that Columbo thinks there may have been a bomb in the car and points out that there are many PhDs on the premises, not just him, that are capable of making a bomb. The next scene, they question Buckner's secretary, Miss Bishop, about the cigar boxes. She mentions that the cleaning lady found the cigar case under her desk and that it must have fallen out of his breast coat pocket. Columbo acts a little disappointed, and Roger realizes that Columbo had assumed that the killer had been trying to orchestrate that Buckner opened a new box of cigars in the car by removing all other cigars. Try not to look directly at the crotch of Roger's pants. The three of them try to establish who had access to the cigar box that would eventually be placed in Buckner's car with the suitcase and top coat. And Miss Bishop mentions that Vice President Everett Logan has a separate supply of cigar boxes as well. So now in Everett's office, Everett says he has four boxes, and when he opens his cabinet, there are only three. He calls in his secretary, Nancy, to ask her, and she has no idea why there's a box missing. On her way out, she looks stunned and breaks the fourth wall by looking directly into the camera. Usually, Columbo has to play the fool to get the villain to interact with him. This is not the case here. Roger is following Columbo around, taking pictures and telling everyone that Columbo thinks there was a bomb in the cigar box. Now Columbo is outside, walking back to his car when Roger pulls up in a golf cart and offers him a lift. He just can't shake this guy. Columbo shows Roger a memo that they found in Quincy's waste bin in his apartment. It indicates that Logan was using Roger to stir up trouble about the sale of the company in the hopes that he would influence his aunt. Roger acts upset. Columbo mentions that they couldn't find the typewriter in Quincy's apartment. 
This would be the typewriter that Roger took away earlier when he broke into Quincy's apartment and typed up the memo that he apparently left in the wastebasket to be found by Columbo. I really don't understand the next part of the conversation that transpired. Columbo asked Roger if he knew if Quincy had a hideaway, perhaps somewhere where he could type up memos. Then Roger says that one time during a poker game, he saw a piece of paper in Quincy's wallet that said, Harry J. O'Neill. Huh? What does that mean? Does he mean a business card? Did, did he make a mistake and they, they weren't able to reshoot the shot, so they, they just went with it? Why was there a piece of paper in his wallet that said, Harry J. O'Neill? It, it's just confusing because I'm imagining them playing poker and Quincy uh, flops his wallet open and there's a, an 8.5 by 11 sticking out right in the middle in 36-point font reads, Harry J. O'Neill. Columbo drives off. Roger gets in his car and he is about to leave. Mrs. Bishop comes running out of the building frantically and stops him. She's worried about having to lie, uh, about saying she was at the movies with him. She mentions that she gave Roger access to the confidential personnel files of Everett Logan and she doesn't want anyone to know that she and Roger are in a relationship. So Roger tells her to relax and it will all be over soon. And then he just drives off. Okay, so now we're back with Columbo and the sheriff at the crash site. They've obtained proof that the gas tank has exploded, but can't prove that there was a bomb and they can't locate the cigar box. Uh -oh. Okay, so now Roger's car pulls into a little residential complex. He enters one of the apartments with a key. California is really beautiful. It's a great little apartment, very obtrusive uh, kitchen cabinets. Kind of like that Seinfeld episode. There's a picture of Quincy and his lady on the desk. So I guess this is Quincy's memo hideaway. Roger places the typewriter on a desk. He sits and waits until he sees cops arrive out front later that night. Then he makes a deliberate noise so that the cops know he's inside. He runs outside and attempts a fake escape attempt and allows himself to be caught. The next scene... Roger and the cops are at Aunt Dory's house, and Roger is refusing to tell Doris why he was there. Columbo arrives. Doris tells Columbo that she found a memo from Quincy to Buckner in one of Buckner's suit pockets. The memo contains some very damaging information about Everett Logan. She believes that Buckner was using Quincy to investigate his executives. Another detective arrives with information that they obtained from Quincy's hideaway. They found several dossiers on company executives, and Quincy's bank account showed a large deposit. The detective remarks that Quincy must have been trying to blackmail his own boss, and he shows Columbo a picture that Roger was trying to abscond with. Doris grabs the picture from the detective and sees that it's Miss Bishop and Buckner together. So, presumably, Roger has done some Photoshop magic on the pictures he took of Miss Bishop and placed her with Buckner. I'm starting to like Roger a little bit. Roger freaks out at Columbo for allowing Doris to see the pictures. The very thing he was trying to avoid happening by breaking into Quincy's hideaway. Doris then requests that the pictures be burnt, and Columbo and the detectives get out. Apparently she can do that, because she's rich. 
Before Columbo leaves, he hears Roger and Doris talking. Roger says that he has known about their affair for years and that he asked Buckner to stop. Doris realizes that this is why Buckner hated Roger. And Roger's really a good boy. Roger secretly smiles as he hugs Doris. All right, let's recap what has happened thus far. Stanford Chemical is about to be sold to a large conglomerate. The sale would be great for the bottom line, but will eliminate Roger's chances of one day running the company that bears his family name. Roger plans and executes the murder of chief executive and uncle David Buckner, and in the process creates false evidence of corporate shenanigans and marital affairs. This has a multi-pronged effect of putting the sale of the company in jeopardy and elevating Roger in the eyes of his Aunt Doris. If Roger can avoid arrest and the sale of the company falls through, Doris is sure to give up control, leaving Roger in charge. The Get Scene We now see Roger arrive at the office with a suit on and being driven by a chauffeur in a limo. He's classy now. He walks through the office confidently, ignoring the staff's greetings. Miss Bishop is at her desk, upset. She's been given a pink slip. Roger tells her that personnel screwed up, and she's she's not fired. Aunt Doris remembered that Miss Bishop's mother wanted to live in Arizona, and she thought Miss Bishop might be happier there, too. I, I don't really understand this. That's not really an explanation. I think Roger just isn't able to confront Miss Bishop and tell her that he doesn't want a relationship. Maybe he thinks that if he puts her off for long enough, she'll give up. Presumably, he also doesn't want her to know that he faked Amherst pictures of her and Buckner and start a chain of events leading to his whole plan unraveling. After all, Miss Bishop may be able to identify the pictures as the one Roger took of her, and she can definitely verify that she gave Roger access to personnel files, uh, which he could have used to create the evidence purportedly to be about, uh, to be from Quincy. So Roger has been sloppy here. Logan and Bishop have been fired, but not removed from the situation. If either of them speak with Aunt Dory, Roger's lies could be exposed. Roger enters his new office, which was Buckner's old office. He tells the workers to leave. Then he does a customary spin around in his new desk chair and puts his feet up, like anybody who gets a new office does. Columbo and Logan arrive. Logan has just been fired and seems to think that Roger may have had something to do about it. Columbo says the Pine Wild Sheriff's Office found something important. He invites Roger along. Roger initially declines, but then accepts after Logan mentions that Doris should be up at the cabin and he wants to talk with her. They arrive at the base of the tram. The sheriff gives Columbo a bag with some evidence that they found, and Roger, Logan, and Columbo rush onto the tram as it rises up the mountain. Finally, some tourists are exiting the tram. On the tram, Columbo opens the bag and it's the cigar box, and it's charred but intact. This is the trap. Roger looks concerned. Logan says, this means, this means that Buckner wasn't murdered. And Columbo says that it must have been the gas tank after all, and that they need to tell Doris immediately. So the setup is on. Logan says 
Now that Buckner's death was an accident, he's anxious to speak with Dory and find out why he was let go. Columbo tells him about the reports that Quincy wrote, that Roger faked, uh, that falsely claimed that Logan met with the competition, sold a patent to a friend cheaply, etc. Uh, Logan denounces them as lies. This is Roger's sloppiness coming back to haunt him. Roger wants to get his hands on the cigar box since he thinks that if they open it, it will explode and it will be on the tram so there's nowhere to run. Columbo opens the box and Roger checks his watch. And Columbo begins telling Roger about the theory that he had about how Roger could have faked Quincy's reports, created the bomb, faked the pictures of Miss Bishop and Buckner, and stolen Logan's cigar box and opened Quincy's bank account. Everett slowly begins to understand that Roger really did do all those things. Um, Roger grows progressively more panicked begins yelling that they have to get off the uh, get rid of the cigar box he opens the tram door to try to throw the cigar box out but it spills on the floor and logan asks columbo uh, where where did he get this uh, the box of cigars and columbo says from logan's secretary roger then realizes that this was a setup and that he's caught and he begins laughing hysterically well and there you have it not the greatest episode but it definitely had some fun moments Um, so a lot of star power and a poor episode so let's talk about some of the actors okay roddy mcdowell born 1928 died in 1998 70 years old of lung cancer very popular one for the old actors this is only colombo episode He's best known for Planet of the Apes, 1968, and uh, two other films that he appeared in with other Columbo villains, Cleopatra, 1963, as Octavian, also has Columbo villain Martin Landau, and The Longest Day, 1962, a small role, also had Eddie Albert, a recent Columbo villain. So... He was laughable as uh, Package Pants Roger. Uh, Roger was poor on execution. He had juvenile antics, like following Columbo around. And this behavior nearly derailed his covering up of his crimes. And it was most annoying. The way he set up Miss Bishop and Logan, this was flawed and sure to be found out. I, I just, I found him to be a terrible villain. I did not like this episode and it grows on me as it gets more in the past. Like as the more I see this episode, the more I dislike it. Um, but like I say, lots of star power, including the next one, Ida Lupino born 1918 and died in 1995 of stroke while getting treatment for lung, uh, sorry, colon cancer. So the other Columbo episode she was in was a uh, swan song with Johnny Cash Movies that she was famous for is They Drive by Night, 1940, High Sierra, 1941, and Food of the Gods, 1976. That one's not very good. Um, uh, she was also she directed a Twilight Zone episode and a Honey West episode, so we'll, we'll talk about that here. Um, she and her husband formed a production company okay, called The Filmmakers, and their goal was to film socially conscious uh, films, mostly lower budget films. Uh, So she became one of the first prominent female directors. I think she was like the first 
female to direct noir films. She so check out The Hitchhiker, 1953. That was a good film. I like that one. She also directed a Twilight Zone episode, uh, The Masks, and um, a Honey West episode. Uh, How Brillig O. Beamish Boy. I don't know what that name is, but um, 1966. So she has an interesting story. Uh, you should check out the You Must Remember This podcast. There's an episode about Isla Lupino. It's uh, I don't know what episode it is, what number, but it's got her name in the title. It's a great uh, podcast, so it's a very good episode. Check it out. Okay. James Gregory. Okay, he was born in 1911, and he died in 2002 at age 90 of natural causes. Natural causes. I never like that term. It's just meaningless, you know? Here's what Wikipedia has to say about death by natural causes. A death by natural causes as recorded by coroners and on death certificates and associated documents is the end result of an illness or an internal malfunction of the body not directly caused by external forces. So it just, it's fine. It just, it could mean anything, right? But I, I guess it's, it's fine if you weren't murdered and the details aren't really important, but you died because something stopped working, then natural causes sort of fits. A slew of acting credits, Nightfall, 1957, The Mancurian Candidate, 1962, Clambake, 1967, it's an Elvis movie, and Beneath the Planet of the Apes, 1970, which only had Roddy McDowell in archive footage. So I think Bookner uh, was well done. He was smart and aggressive. He knew what he wanted uh, to neutralize Roger so that he didn't interfere with the sale of the company. And so he set Quincy to get some dirt on Roger. I thought that was good. Uh, where Buckner went wrong was not to realize that Roger was a, a crazy sociopath that may or may not have killed his parents, and he couldn't be trusted to be cooperative uh, as a blackmailee. Anne Francis was born in 1930 and died in 2011 at age 80 of pancreatic cancer. Columbo appearances, so this episode, Short Fuse, 1972. A Stitch in Crime from Season 2, 1973. That's the one with Leonard Nimoy, fan favorite. Um, that took its name from a Honey West episode in 1965. Um, so movie roles, we talked about this briefly. Blackboard Jungle, 1955. Forbidden Planet, 1956. Um, Forbidden Planet is like, if you haven't seen that, go see that. I mean, even if you're not a sci-fi fan, you can see uh, the influence it had. And, I don't know, it's just such a major movie. You should, should check it out. Um, TV roles in the Twilight Zone episodes, The After Hours, 1960, and Jess Bell, 1963. And obviously her own series, Honey West, 1965. So we kind of have two women in this episode that were groundbreaking Ida Lupino for her directing and Anne Francis for her having her own show on being a big star next week on the predictably treacherous podcast we have the final episode of season one blueprint for murder starring Patrick O'Neill here's a brief summary Elliot Markham is an architect and he's building his greatest project Williamson City using the money of globetrotting oil man Bo Williamson when Bo returns from Europe, he puts the brakes on the project and calls Markham a con man. Markham sees Bo as a Philistine, and in order to continue his project, 
Markham kills Bo and hides the body, making it seem like Bo has disappeared to Europe. Tune in next week. Thank you.